Chapter six, part two of Glimpses of Italian Society in the Eighteenth Century by Hester Lynch Piozzi. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Florence, part two. I have been out to dinner in the country near Prato, and what a charming, what a delightful thing is a nobleman's seat near Florence. How cheerful the society, how splendid the climate. How wonderful the prospects in this glorious country! The Arno rolling before his house, the Apennines rising behind it. A sight of fertility enjoyed by its inhabitants, and a view of such defences to their property as nature alone can bestow. A peasantry so rich, too, that the wives and daughters of the farmer go dressed in jewels, and those of no small value. A pair of one-drop earrings, a broadish necklace, with a long piece hanging down the bosom, and terminated with a cross, all of set garnets, clear and perfect, is a common, a very common treasure to the females about this country. And on every Sunday or holiday, when they dress and mean to look pretty, their elegantly disposed ornaments attract attention strongly though I do not think them as handsome as the Lombard lasses, and our Venetian friends protest that the farmers at Kramer in their state are still richer. La Contadinella Toscana, however, in a very rich white silk petticoat, exceedingly full and short, to show off her neat pink slipper and pretty ankle, her pink corde-robe and straps with white silk lacing down the stomacher, puffed shirt-sleeves with heavy lace robins ending at the elbow, and fastened at the shoulders with at least eight or nine bows of narrow pink ribbon, a lawn handkerchief trimmed with broad lace put on somewhat coquettishly and finishing in front with a nosegay, must make a lovely figure at any rate, though the hair is drawn away from the face in a way rather too tight to be becoming, under a red velvet cushion edged with gold which helps to wear it off i think but gives the small leghorn hat lined with green a pretty perking air which is infinitely nymphish and smart a tolerably pretty girl so dressed must surely more than vie with a fee d'opera upon the paris stage even if she were not set off as these are with a very rich suite of pearls or set garnets that in France or England would not be purchased for less than forty or fifty pounds. And I am now speaking of the women perpetually under one's eye, not one or two picked from the crowd, like Mrs. Vanini, an innkeeper's wife in Florence, who, when she was dressed for the masquerade two nights ago, submitted her finery to Mrs. Greatheed's inspection and my own, who agreed she could not be so adorned in England for less than a thousand pounds. It is true the nobility are proud of letting you see how comfortably their dependents live in Tuscany, but can any pride be more rational or generous, or any desire more patriotic? Oh, may they never look with less delight on the happiness of their inferiors, and then they will not murmur at their prince whose protection of this rank among his subjects is eminently tender and attentive. I have been showed at the horse-race, the theatre, etc., the unfortunate grandson of King James the Second, 
he goes much into public still though old and sickly gives the english arms and livery and wears the garter which he has likewise bestowed upon his natural daughter the princess of stolberg his consort whom he always called queen has left him to end a life of disappointment and sorrow by himself with the sad reflection that even conjugal attachment and of course domestic comfort was denied to him and fled in defiance of poetry and fiction fled with the crown to its powerful and triumphant possessors the states of italy being all under different rulers are kept separate from each other and speak a different dialect that of milan full of consonants and harsh to the ear but abounding with classical expressions that rejoice one's heart and fill one with the oddest but most pleasing sensations imaginable i heard a lady there call a runaway nobleman profugo mighty prettily and added that his conduct had put all the town into orgasmo grande all this however the tuscans may possibly have in common with them my knowledge of the language must remain ever too imperfect for me to depend on my own skill in it all i can assert is that the florentines appear as far as i have been competent to observe to depend more on their own copious and beautiful language for expression than the milanese do who run to spanish greek or latin for assistance while half their tongue is avowedly borrowed from the french whose pronunciation in the letter u they even profess to retain at venice the sweetness of the patois is irresistible their lips incapable of uttering any but the sweetest sounds reject all consonants they can get quit of and make their mouths drop honey more completely than it can be said by any eloquence less mellifluous than their own the bolognese dialect is detested by the other italians as gross and disagreeable in its sounds but every nation has the good word of its own inhabitants and the language which abate bianconi praises as nervous and expressive i would advise no person less learned than himself to censure as disgusting or condemn as dull i stayed very little at bologna saw nothing but their pictures and heard nothing but their prayers those were superior i fancy to all rivals language can never be spoken of by a foreigner to any effect of conviction i have heard our countryman mr great heed himself who perhaps possesses more italian than almost any englishman and studies it more closely refuse to decide in critical disputations amongst his literary friends here though the sonnets he writes in the tuscan language are praised by the natives who best understand it and have been by some of them preferred to those written by milton himself meantime this is acknowledged to be the prime city for purity of phrase and delicacy of expression which at last is so disguised to me by the guttural manner in which many sounds are pronounced that i feel half weary of running about from town to town so and never arriving at any where i can understand the conversation without putting all the attention possible to their discourse 
I am now told that less effort will be necessary at Rome. Nothing can be prettier, however, than the slow and tranquil manners of a Florentine. Nothing more polished than his general address and behaviour. Ever in the third person, don't a blackguard in the street, if he has not the honour of his particular acquaintance, while intimacy produces boy in those of the highest rank, who call one another Carlo and Angelo very sweetly, the ladies taking up the same notion by saying Luisa or Madalena, without any addition at all. The Don and Donna of Milan were offensive to me somehow, as they conveyed an idea of Spain, not Italy. Here Signora is the term which better pleases one's ear, and Signora Contessa, Signora Principessa, if the person is of higher quality, resembles our manners more when we say My Lady Duchess, etc. What strikes me as most observable is the uniformity of style in all the great towns. At Venice, the men of literature and fashion speak with the same accent and I believe the same quick turns of expression as their gondolier. And the coachman of Milan talks no broader than the countess, who, if she does not speak always in French to a foreigner, as she would willingly do, tries in vain to talk Italian. And having asked you thus, Agliacapi, which means, Ha ella capita, laughs at herself for trying to toscaneggiare, as she calls it, and gives the point up with noco altro that comes in at the end of every sentence and means non occorre altro. There is no more occurs upon the subject. The laquais de place who attended us at Bologna was one of the few persons I had met with who spoke a language perfectly intelligible to me. Are you a Florentine, pray friend, said I. No, madam, but the combinations of this world having led me to talk much with strangers, I contrive to Tuscanize it all I can for their advantage, and doubt not but it will tend to my own at last. Such a sentiment so expressed by a footman would set a plain man in London a-laughing, and make a fanciful lady imagine he was a nobleman disguised. Here nobody laughs, nor nobody stares, nor wonders that their valet speaks just as good language or utters as well-turned sentences as themselves. Their cold answer, to my amazement, is as comical as a fellow's fine style. E battizzato, say they, come noi altri. Footnote, he has been baptised as well as we. End footnote. But we are called away to hear the fair Fantastici, a young woman who makes improviso verses and sings them as they tell me with infinite learning and taste she is successor to the celebrated corilla who no longer exhibits the power she once held without a rival yet to her conversations everyone still strives for admittance though she is now ill and old and hoarse with repeated colds she spares however now by no labour or fatigue to obtain and keep that superiority and admiration which one day perhaps gave her almost equal trouble to receive and to repay. But who can bear to lay their laurels by? 
Carilla is gay by nature and witty, if I may say so, by habit, replete with fancy and powerful to combine images apparently distant. Mankind is at last more just to people of talents than is universally allowed, I think. Carilla, without pretensions either to immaculate character in the English sense, deep erudition or high birth, which an Italian esteems above all earthly things, has so made her way in the world that all the nobility of both sexes crowd to her house, that no prince passes through Florence without waiting on Carilla, that the capital will long recollect her being crowned there, and that many sovereigns have not only sought her company, but have been obliged to put up with slights from her independent spirit and from her airy, rather than haughty, behaviour. She is, however, I cannot guess why, not rich and keeps no carriage, but enjoying all the effect of money, convenience, company and general attention, is probably very happy, as she does not much suffer her thoughts on the next world to disturb her felicity in this, I believe, while willing to turn everything into mirth and to make all admire her wit, even at the expense of their own virtue. The following epigram made by her would explain my meaning and give a specimen of her present powers of improvisation, undecayed by ill health and, I might add, undismayed by it. An old gentleman here, one Gaetano Testagrossa, had a young wife whose name was Mary, and who brought him a son when he was more than seventy years old. Carilla led him gaily into the circle of company with these words. Miei signori, io vi presento il buon uomo Gaetano che non sa che cosa sia il misterio sovrumano del figliolo di Maria. We were walking last night in the gardens of Porta San Gallo and met two or three well-looking women of the second rank with a baby, four or five years old at most, dressed in the habit of a Dominican friar bestowing the benediction as he walked along like an officiating priest. I felt a shock given to all my nerves at once, and asked Cavalier Dilci the meaning of so strange a device. His reply to me was, E divizione malintesa, signora. Footnote. It's an ill-understood devotion, madam. End footnote. And turning round to the other gentleman, Now this folly, said he, a hundred years ago would have been the object of profound veneration and prodigious applause. Fifty years hence, it will be censured as hypocritical. It is now passed by wholly unnoticed except by this foreign lady, who I believe thought it was done as a joke. But I must bid adieu to beautiful Florence, where the streets are kept so clean, one is afraid to dirty them and not oneself by walking in them where the public walks are all nicely weeded, as in England, and the gardens have a homish and bath-like look that is exceedingly cheering to an English eye, where, when I dined at Prince Corsini's table, I heard the Cardinal say grace and thought of the ceremonies at Queen's College, Oxford, where I had the honour of entertaining at my own dinner on the 25th of July many of the Tuscan and many of the English nobility, 
and Nardini kindly played a solo in the evening at a concert we gave in Meggett's great room, where we have compiled the little book amongst us known by the name of the Florence Miscellany, as a memorial of that friendship which does me so much honour, and which I earnestly hope may long subsist among us, where, in short, we have lived exceeding comfortably, but where dear Mrs. Greatheed and myself have encouraged each other in saying, it would be particularly sad to die not of the gnats, or more properly mosquitoes, for they do not sting one quite to death, though their venom has swelled my own arm so as to oblige me to carry it for this last week in a sling, but of the mal de petto, which is endemial in this country, and much resembling our pleurisy in its effects. Blindness, too, seems no uncommon misfortune of Florence, from the strong reverberation of the sun's rays on houses of the cleanest and most brilliant whiteness, kept so elegantly nice, too, that I should despair of seeing more delicacy at Amsterdam. Apoplexies are likewise frequent enough. I saw a man carried out stone dead from Sam Pancrazio's church one morning about noonday, but nobody seemed disturbed at the event, I think, except myself. So this is no good town to take one's last leave of life in, neither, as the body one has been so long taken care of would, in twenty-four hours, be hoisted up upon a common cart with those of all the people who died the same day, and being fairly carried out of Porto San Gallo towards the dusk of evening, will be shot into a hole dug away from the city, properly enough to protect Florence and keep it clear of putrid disorders and disagreeable smells, all this with little ceremony, to be sure, and less distinction. For the Grand Duke suffers the pride of birth to last no longer than life, however, and demolishes every hope of the woman of quality lying in a separate grave from the distressed object who begged at her carriage door when she was last on an airing. Let me add that his liberality of sentiment extends to virtue on the one hand, if hardness of heart may be complained of on the other. He suffers no difference of opinions to operate upon his philosophy, and I believe we heretics here should sleep among the best of his Tuscan nobles, but there is no comfort in the possibility of being buried alive by the excessive haste with which people are catched up and hurried away, before it can be known almost whether all sparks of life are extinct or no. Of elegant Florence, then, so ornamented and so lovely, so neat that it is said she should be seen only on holidays, dedicated of old to flora and still the residence of sweetness grace and the fine arts particularly of these kind friends too so amiable so hospitable when i had the choice of four boxes every night at the theatre and a certainty of charming society in each we must at last unwillingly take leave and on to-morrow the twelfth day of september seventeen eighty five once more commit ourselves to our coach, which has hitherto met with no accident that could affect us, and in which, with God's protection, I fear not my journey through what is left of Italy. Though such tremendous tales are told in many of our travelling books of terrible roads and wicked postillions, 
and ladies labouring through the mire on foot to arrive at bad inns where nothing eatable could be found. End of chapter 6, part 2